Thirty feet down a dark, icy hole, Tyler Willis was stuck, cold, and losing the use of his hands. Pinned at the waist, the 34-year-old climber from Evanston had fallen into an hourglass-shaped crevasse on the Teton Glacier. At about 50 acres, the Teton Glacier is the largest of 11 glaciers in the mountain range. I'm Rebecca Huntington. You're listening to The Fine Line, real stories of adventure, risk, and rescue in the backcountry of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation. This episode of The Fine Line is supported by Raintree Foundation, a family foundation with a strong attachment to Wyoming, and in particular, the Jackson Hole region. Raintree's primary focus is education, but the foundation also supports a variety of projects that bring people into the outdoors. And through Teton County Search and Rescue, help them return when needed. You can support the volunteers at Teton County Search and Rescue by making an online donation today. Go to tetoncountysar.org slash donate. My name's Tyler Willis, and I'm married, have two kids. Willis disappeared down the Teton Glacier crevasse around 9 p.m. on August 8, 2020. His climbing partner, Josh Anderson, flagged down Jackson climbers Ryan Stolp and Kaya Mosenthal for help. This is the final part of a two-part series. In part one, Stolp and Willis recall the arduous effort of extracting Willis from the crevasse. By the time the team gets him to the surface, the Evanston teacher is completely soaked and unresponsive. Now the climbers have to figure out how to get him to a dry spot and keep him alive while they wait for help from a team of Grand Teton National Park Rangers. Stolp picks up the story from here. So we tried to make a little litter that we could drag. It was extremely unsuccessful and I think also a product of the fact that we really didn't have a lot of tools to work with. Kaya and I had been really fast and light, pretty much like wearing all the clothes that we brought. We brought like three pieces of trad gear and a couple beaners, two or three slings. And I think it was the same for Josh and Tyler and kind of their approach. So, you know, we didn't have foam pads or extra hiking poles. I don't even think I had tape. So uh, the litter was not successful and we were kind of in the middle of this snowy glacier. It's windy, just kind of knew we needed to get out of the elements. Kind of took turns, three little lifts on either side of Tyler, someone on his head, and then you'd rotate out. Fortunately, Tyler fell in the crevasse. Josh is a little bit bigger. I think it would have been harder to move him out of the snow, but it was about maybe 50 yards to the edge of the Snowfield Glacier, um, which comes right into talus, like really steep, loose, scrambly, scree talus crap that's also kind of wet. So even at the edge, there wasn't a place, an island, a flat spot that we could even put put Tyler. We ended up like digging out a little snow, setting up some rocks, but you couldn't even sit two people next to each other. Like there's no way we could have all huddled around him. Tyler's completely unresponsive snoring and foaming at the mouth and muscle spasming pretty much from the time we pulled him out of the crevasse throughout the the night from that point on it was reassuring that he was kind of letting us know how he was breathing through his snores but also super disconcerting just the amount of hypothermia that he had reached that's something that really sticks out to me this whole experience was arriving on the scene where this person's in a hole saying, hey, can you get me out of here? I'm pretty cold. 
to kind of losing sense of where they are and moaning to now like foaming and spasming, you're kind of hearing the whole soundtrack of someone's descent into pretty extreme hypothermia. To Ryan's snoring story there, and my wife will back me up on this, I don't snore normally. So I don't know if that's one of the indications of extreme hypothermia or not. We got to the edge of the snow. It's probably 1215, 1230. Uh, we had taken his pulse vitals when he came out of the crevasse and uh, took it again on the edge and throughout the night. But it was something that I, in retrospect, thought I wish I had used my phone video feature to take like contemporaneous notes throughout the experience. So things would be timestamped. Um, I think that's a, everyone thinks that you need a little pen and paper, but that was something that popped into my head after the fact that I think would have been cool to pass off when rescue did arrive. Just here's the full picture of what was going on. I would say Tyler kicked off his makeshift clothes about every 15 or 20 minutes. Um, we would need to kind of reset him. So I had plenty to do. Whenever I got cold, we'd go move some rocks or work on Tyler's little ledge. It was fortunately, I think, at Teton standards, a decently balmy night, kind of breezy. But we got a confirmation on the spot device after kind of setting Tyler up at like 1230. And the response was that they were sending in two rangers hiking in from Lupine Meadows, and they would be about four hours. Um, it's a pretty remote kind of back out of the way, not great trails, weird gully you have to descend to. So mad props for the four hour ETA. That's a good quick pace. And that was like kind of the first like, okay, like his pulse and his breathing are kind of staying the same and someone will be here in four hours, which would put it right at pre-dawn, which um, opens up a lot of other options. Um, I knew that they didn't fly the helicopter at night, so there wasn't like a false sense of hope in the middle of the night there. I was, you know, we're kind of here for good. And so we persisted through the night, staying warm as we could, warmer than Tyler. Pretty much 4.30 on the dot, headlamps come over the moraine and are coming up to us. And uh, I remember kind of thinking, like you can't really see the depth of how far they are at night with headlamps or pretty excited but i'm like man they're walking on this glacier that has crevasses and i'm like yo like there's crevasses here i don't know if they heard us or not but ended up kind of skirting around the edge uh that was when we finally had some help um it was awesome to kind of have them roll up and be able to pass the baton of just coordinating what we were going to do next to some fresh fresh bodies fresh minds and uh, super capable people. My name is Mike Shane. I am a Jenny Lake climbing, seasonal Jenny Lake climbing ranger. Uh, I've been doing that for four seasons now and before that I worked at Denali National Park as a mountaineering ranger for 17 seasons. Can't believe it was that long. So I've been with the park service for quite a while and I live in Jackson year-round. I've been here for about 15 years now. The way the inReach device works is, uh, as Ryan described, you know, you hope the message gets out depending on satellite reception. That goes to some global re rescue center, and then they pass on that information accordingly. And in this case, it went to the county, and then they got in touch with Teton Park Dispatch, and then they get in touch with our search and rescue coordinator for the, for the night. There's probably seven or so of us rangers that just take turns being the 
SAR coordinator for a 24 hour period. And so the guy on deck got that message. Uh, yeah, probably around 10 30 or 11. And the only message we got was, uh, or that he got was fallen Kerbas is how I remember it. So this was GR Fletcher. He immediately got a hold of a couple of us, you know, we were sleeping, told us this little piece of information and the location. Um, so we spent a little bit of time just coming up with educated guesses on what we might be dealing with. Cody Evans and myself geared up with some Carvas rescue gear and started heading up around 1230. I think it was somewhere between four and 430 that we popped over the last moraine and uh, we were also kind of going through scenarios of what we might find coming up with game plans and uh, at first we were relieved when we saw you know two or three headlamps we thought oh great because we we knew that the message came from uh, Kaya and so a little bit of research we figured out that Kaya and Ryan were on this trip together we had no idea there was anyone else involved our first impression was oh they're all on the surface that's a good thing we walked up, got to them, and I think if I remember right, I paused 50, 100 feet away or so, got my mask on and, and put a layer on just before, you know, that last moment before diving in to the scene. And Ryan started giving us the rundown, the run sheet, so to speak. And uh, I remember immediately he said that Tyler has been unresponsive for like hours at this point. And so... Yeah, first impression was, oh, yep, there's more people involved, and this was a legit ball on a crevasse, and we have a serious, a serious thing going on here. Had to do the old bait and switch on you guys. Yeah, our role, I felt pretty quickly, was fairly obvious, just to continue what had been going on up until that point, just basically uh, trying to rewarm Tyler. Uh, we had a pad and a bag and a couple other dry things. So we were able to swap out some of the dry stuff that Tyler had on, but was, had gotten wet, you know, as he was thrashing around. Uh, those guys did an awesome job with the stuff that they had trying to keep him dry and warm, but inevitably, you know, that all the stuff that he had on was getting wet in the snow. So we swapped some of that out, and uh, I believe Cody spent most of the time literally kneeling on him, on Tyler. And I spent most of the time basically just coordinating how we were going to get out of the mountains using the helicopter at first light. We were kind of in disbelief as we were going up, thinking that this was, you know, a, uh, what it ended up being. It was a you know, 30, 30 plus foot fall into a, a tight crevasse in the middle of the lower Teton glacier. It's definitely yeah. un uncommon. I mean, I'd love to add too, like as someone that's seen crevasses in different terrain, this is pretty much in the flats. Like there's crevasses further up in the steep rollovers where you would expect them. But I mean, I would have been Tyler had I been 20 minutes ahead of him because I would have felt comfortable walking on the flats there. Um, I think it's probably a testament to how much glaciers are changing in recent years and flowing and moving crevasses from one place to another. Because when Mike and um, 
Cody showed up, there was kind of a conversation about, well, did he fall on a crevasse over there and you moved him down here? And it was like, no, this crevasse is right here in the flats. Um, and it was not open before Tyler discovered it. I feel like that could be named after me if, if at all possible. Um, Tyler's yeah. crack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it does, you know, and like I said, I've, I've done some glacial traversing in Alaska and the Wind Rivers. You know, I'm not the most experienced person, but certainly not the least either. And it's a reassuring to hear that from you guys, but it just, it didn't, it looked like a benign spot, you know, and it was clear that dozens of other people, there were footsteps across it, you know, had walked through that area. It just, it didn't seem like the kind of place where that kind of accident should happen. Solid ice 30 feet away like solid, flat, hard ice that you could walk on. Um, pretty yeah. bizarre. I would second that. I've also spent a lot of time on glaciers in the Tetons and other places. And yeah, you generally don't find crevasses that you would fall into in flat country. They're certainly, you know, they, you can find them, uh, but a lot of times it'll be below fern line and, you know, they're just, that are just out in bare ice. And so you just go around them. Unfortunately, this was basically right at the fern line. There's just this little bit of snow covering it. It's that zone basically between bare ice and where you have snowpack that stays throughout the summer. You know, you're going to have this transition zone where uh, early in the season, there'll be snow in the fern line. And then towards the end of the season, it'll go to bare ice. So that's transition zone. If you hit it at the right or wrong time, you could be passing through that area where there's just a little bit of snow left. It would have been the exact end of the day, catching sun the whole day, like probably at its softest moment at eight or 9 PM. I looked it up on Google earth later too. You can actually kind of see where the higher up crevasses flow into that very edge right there on the firm line. Yeah, another uh, kind of interesting thing is uh, when, you, when you're passing through that firm line area, um, normally too, you would expect to see some indication of a crevasse like that, like the snow being elastic would sort of be sagging there. Or would, you, know, you, you might see some feature that would give you a, a hint that there's a slot underneath there, but I did look at it. We didn't walk over to it, but from where we were all hanging out there early in, early in the morning, I could see that it was basically just dead flat snow over that little slot, like a, essentially like a trap door. To add one scenario, just to compare uh, my last season on Denali, it was actually just a few weeks before I started here in the Tetons there was a crevasse fall on the lower Kahiltna Glacier where someone fell in unroped, got wedged kind of similarly to Tyler. All said and done, I think it took over 12 hours to get them out. Folks were going in uh, like Ryan was and Josh were just trying to access something that we could attach to the, this guy to get him out. Uh, he had snowshoes on and they were, they had somehow gotten through this pinch point and so they were basically making it nearly impossible to pull them out. Um, and we ended up, it's a bit of an outlier scenario, but we ended up using a pneumatic ice drill that was flown in and uh, 
basically chipped away at the ice to get them out. So that's a little more extreme. And like I said, a bit of, a, <laughs> of an outlier. I don't um, keep that in my ultralight setup. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's, a, it's important to know that crevasse extrication can, can be complex. What I learned and what really came home for me on this was the procedures and the training that you have, you know, they're a toolbox that you can put tools together in different ways, but there's a reason that there's some core processes. And in retrospect, I think I could have done two pretty big things differently. One would have been to build the system myself or fully inspect the system from the beginning before ropes start getting loaded. Um, I think there was a part where um, the lip prep had shifted or the fast lip prep that Josh had done when Tyler had first fallen in wasn't adequate for the type of like full body pulling that we were going to do. And once that rope's weighted, it's pretty difficult to reprep that lip. And so while you think it takes time to do these things, like there are certain corners you can't cut that are there for a reason. Um, because I think it ultimately it probably did add a little bit of time um, just having to deal with that further downstream. And, I, and maybe along the same lines, like I wish I had just repelled in from the beginning. Like if he couldn't get to his harness, I guess I didn't really appreciate how stuck you can get. Kind of understood him to be a little bit more like maybe in a ledge or something. So I'm um, just planning, planning to have the maximum amount of, uh, in a crevasse rescue, you know, applying force, but just options and opportunities and power and brute force that you might need for a situation like that. And I definitely climb with a space blanket now. Um, that's a really simple lightweight thing that would have been huge for us to be able to maybe rewarm Tyler or get out of the wind or use on a litter. I'm not advocating climbing with a sleeping bag and tons of other stuff, but I think a space blanket, some tape, like a couple little things could have gone a long way. Maybe a pulley, honestly. I'm a big fan of extra socks. We actually did have extra socks. Um, we probably put them on too soon because they got wet again, but it would have been big to be able to put on Tyler's hands or feet or even just your kind of own mental having wet feet is kind of like the worst. Um, and you know, if, if we had like finished, gotten to the edge on the dry and been able to change into completely dry socks at that point, it's a big morale booster. And I think you have to, you have to keep up with the morale throughout those pieces. I remember, I think one thing that really got us all through and helped us stay focused as a team was trying to celebrate the little wins. When I first got Tyler clipped into the rope, I remember getting to the top, like, okay guys, like we can celebrate this. Like, that's one, we got a checkpoint. Setting those micro goals and vocalizing them to everyone that you're making progress, even though it's complicated and it's a long journey. I honestly can't imagine that situation a thousand other times with a thousand other people and it having the kind of um, focus and teamwork and presence of mind that everyone was able to dig into. I was not expecting that. Having never climbed with Kaya and having never met Tyler or Josh, that's not what you expect. <laughs> I always was kind of the ultralight. I'm going to take the minimal amount of gear that I need to do this successfully. And I've kind of changed my mindset a little bit. You know, we were on a 40 meter rope. And we would have been faster overall, not to mention, I don't know, potentially safer if we'd had a 60 meter rope and then an extra layer of clothing. I, ha I have a go bag, you know, it has 
stuff in it, matches, waterproof matches, things like that, a little knife, but nothing to burn up there, you know, nothing in that situation. None of that stuff was very good. And then of course the uh, emergency blanket that Ryan mentioned, anytime I'm going out somewhere where it's cold or there's a potential for spending the night, that's definitely something I take with me. The fact that you had your harness and helmet on in that last little bit, like I frequently leave it on just because it's easier than putting in my bag or I'm lazy, but whether coincidence or thoughtfulness, I think just being super aware of what, where objective hazards exist and not setting yourself up for quick failure there. You know, if you're on snow or in a rockfall area, you have those things, it's easy to keep them on or pop a helmet on. Yep. Definitely. I had some pretty big lacerations on my face and, you know, I can't say for certain, but potentially having that helmet on uh, saved my life as well. I've always been a big advocate of helmets in almost any sport that I do. And then now, you know, I won't be on snow or ice that has potential of, of falling or crevasses without a rope and the adequate gear to protect it. As Ryan described, you know, he was completely unresponsive. He was unresponsive to any verbal stimuli or even painful stimuli and was groaning and, and foaming. And we didn't know if any of that was from a potential head injury from the fall or if that was just, not just, but if it was attributed to the hypothermia, severe hypothermia that he obviously had. When Tyler was warming up, I was amazed, like once they got him in the burrito wrap, how he just kind of stepped backwards through all those steps that I had seen the night before. It started with a, a kind of acknowledgement. I believe it was a, what's up? Yeah. <laughs> One of the Budweiser, what's up? But, you know, him not knowing his name or date and then that coming and then remembering what had happened, that coming to, like, it was like you were just scrubbing down muck and getting to the Tyler that I had at least seen 10 minutes after falling into the crevasse. My first recollection is kind of coming to, I believe it was Cody was talking to me and he said, Hey man, you've been in a, a crevasse fall. Can you tell me your name? And I, you know, yeah, my name's Tyler, whatever. Okay. And then he said, there's a helicopter coming to get you. And I was like, no, I'm good. I can hike out. And then kind of had a little conversation with him about paying for the helicopter. And he said, well, at least the first one we should, should be covered. And then life flight's going to take you to Idaho falls from there. And I wasn't very thrilled about the prospects of the uh, medical bills kind of thought, you know, I'll be able to walk out of this and there was no way I couldn't even move. <laughs> Eventually they did let me sit up. I think they kind of ascertained that I didn't have spinal injuries. It was a pretty sweet sight seeing that helicopter come in. It was about, I believe nine o'clock in the morning that Kara got, Kara's my wife. She got a phone call saying, Hey, your husband's been in a climbing accident and he's being life flighted to the Idaho falls um, hospital. My parents live in Rexburg. So she was able to call my parents and they went down to the hospital uh, with all the COVID things. They weren't able to get in for quite a while and nobody really knew what my status was still very hypothermic, no mobility in my hands or arms. They did let my mom and dad each in for a few minutes and I was coherent. I could talk to them, said, let Kara and Josh know that I'm okay. 
you know, I can't use my arms, but I'm alive. So they were, of course, really relieved to have that and pass that along to Josh and Kara. And it was there in the emergency room. I'd probably been in the ER a couple of hours and all of a sudden could move my right thumb just a little bit. And that was the first indication that, you know, I had any mobility and they did full x-rays and CAT scans determined that I didn't have trauma to my neck or back. Then they determined that it was a brachial plexal injury in my armpits. Just having that circulation cut off for so long was what damaged my hands. Within a few hours, they moved me into the uh, regular part of the hospital, spent a few days there. I had big lacerations on my knees as well, just from, I didn't have my crampons on. So trying to flail around, trying to get purchase on anything to uh, help get out. Overall, pretty, uh, pretty minimal injuries for the accident that happened. Kaya's family was worried similarly because when the spot message first went out, it's tied to her name and her account and our secondary message, I don't think ever was received. So from her family's perspective, they got a call at 1230 when that message went in and thought that she was in a crevasse until 430 or five in the morning. So a couple ripple effects. I'm curious how Josh is doing for obvious reasons, a lot of attention gets put into when someone gets injured, how they're doing. I think moments like this can be fairly traumatic for the partners as well, who seemingly are uninjured, but you know, are equally involved in it. He's a very caring dude. It was a, it was a rough week for him, especially while I was in the hospital. Uh, he was waiting for me when I got back to Evanston. He wanted to come up to the hospital, but I could only actually have one visitor. But it was an emotional reunion when we got back together. And it definitely took a couple of weeks of kind of me being his support for the emotional side while he was supporting me with the physical side. I mean, he's, he's the more experienced of us and, you know, kind of has this blame himself thing, which, you know, I'm like, dude, the only thing you can blame yourself for is helping get me out. It was a freak accident. And I think he's pretty well recovered now. You know, we've been back out doing some climbing together and stuff and getting back to it. He was rooting for you the whole night, man. I could tell that you guys have a really strong friendship and that he was very much 110% invested in seeing a good outcome. Yeah. And then we did have a reunion with Ryan and Kaya in Jackson back in September. And that was awesome. Had the kids and my wife and Josh's wife got to meet him and had some pizza out on the deck and it was pretty awesome to have everyone together and um, kind of relive some of those moments in a really happy light. It was cool to get to meet you and hear more about, I mean, like lots of people could have fallen in that hole and a lot of them could have been resentful or, you know, not have that spark and love of the mountains or the perspective that you carried from that day forward. It was really cool. I couldn't think of a, a person that is kind of on my wavelength as much as Tyler and Josh are and felt like lifelong friends and pick up where we left off and plan the next trip. You know, I got two new, two new adventure buddies. Anyone going up a glacier that they are unfamiliar with, or there's not a lot of information on that you should be roped. In this case, I think there's quite a bit of information out there. And that information sort of steers people towards not worrying about it. And so I think 
the one change now would be the details of this happening sort of gets spread out there and, uh, and becomes one of those tidbits that people are picking up as they're doing research for their climb that like, oh yeah, well, there was, there was a pretty serious crevasse fall there last season. I'd say after descending the Coven route, it's such a slog. I, would, I just don't do the Coven route. There's so many other great routes. To do. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, so what was your route today? Like, oh, we, we just came up here to do Owen via the Coven. I'm like, man, like you guys just love getting beat up and slogging uphill a bunch. <laughs> yeah, we, we have weird hobbies. <laughs> Comparing it to the, you know, to the OS on the Grand, it's a much longer just arduous slog i was just gonna see if uh tyler's insurance is also going to cover the puffy jacket in the er they cut it off and i'm pretty you know only semi with it but i remember feathers just floating around in the er like oh man we're not supposed to cut the puffy jacket or the down jackets and i just lay in there watching these feathers float down around me (laughs) no word on the getting charged for that though so (laughs) (laughs) snow globe i don't remember that detail Tyler, did did we send you off with a park puffy? That that seems. Oh, I don't know. I don't want to yeah. uh, incriminate myself here. <laughs> I wouldn't even think twice about it. I mean, we have a cache of things for that purpose. We don't expect them all to come back. I have a I have a souvenir. The green rope that we used to pull you out, the sheaths became like for a foot completely ripped up. I ended up weaving it into a, a Turkish knotted climbing rope rug and so i have a little good luck omen when i come and go from my house now made sure that tore up sheath is on the top that's sweet it's actually been a pretty amazing recovery so far Uh, i'd say i'm at about 70 percent strength full mobility is back there in the hospital i started to be able to move my right hand you know i couldn't feed myself at first i couldn't brush my teeth from nothing back to really close to 100 percent a lot of physical therapy. I feel blessed to still be here and then to have this recovery go as well as it has. I've been able to get back out doing a little bit of climbing and riding my bike. Ski season's looking promising. I didn't know if any of those things were going to be possibilities. You know, laying there in the hospital, I thought maybe I'm going to lose an arm. Grateful to be alive. Grateful for these awesome people that stepped up to make it so I could get home. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero a vision of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. Find out more at backcountryzero.com.